0: Atonement is adapted from Ian McEwan's highly revered historical novel, set in and around World War II. Cecilia Tallis, a young, upper-class woman, falls in love with Robbie Turner, the son of the family gardener. In a vicious turn of events, Cecilia's much younger sister, Briony, falsely accuses Robbie of raping her friend, and everyone's lives are shattered as a consequence. Do you have any idea what it's like in jail? Of course you don't. Tell me, did it give you pleasure to think of me inside? No. But you did nothing about it? No. Do you think I assaulted your cousin? No. Did you think it then? Yes, well, yes and no. And what's made you so certain now? Growing up? I was 13. How old do you have to be to know the difference between right and wrong? What are you, 18? Do you have to be 18 before you can bring yourself to own up to a lie? There are soldiers of 18 old enough to be left to die by the side of the road. Did you know that? The novel's high regard comes not just from the story McEwan told, but the way he told it. In many ways, the story is about storytelling. So, the novel makes several allusions to other great English literary works. For example, L.P. Hartley's The Go-Between that is also about an illicit affair between the classes. Only this time, it is told from the point of view of a young boy, the go-between of the title, who couriers letters and notes between a wealthy woman and her humble neighbor. Then there is E.M. Forster's A Passage to India, that centres around a man falsely accused of rape. After that, you have Elizabeth Bowen's The Heat of the Day, that also takes place during World War II, where two lovers are also stymied by an interfering third party. But perhaps most explicit of all is D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover, where an aristocratic woman has an affair with her gardener. Lawrence's novel was the centre of an obscenity trial for its use of what some people consider to be unliterary words. While McEwan's novel was never brought before the courts, it does nonetheless contain the crucial use of a certain word pertaining to the female anatomy. The word itself is never actually uttered in the film, but we do see it being written, typed in fact. You see what I mean about the story being about storytelling? With that in mind, we can see that typing and writing are major motifs in the plot. Notes are scribbled, plays are penned and letters are posted. In fact, the act of writing is there from the start, not just on the screen, but also on the soundtrack. We see the young Briony, brilliantly played by Irish actress Saoirse Ronan in an Oscar-nominated performance, putting the finishing touches to a play she has just written. It's called The Trials of Arabella. We never see the contents of the play, but when all is said and done, when the movie is over, we could just as easily have been witnessing the confessions of Briony any point in writing a story if you're not going to let anyone read it. It's not ready yet. It's unfinished. What's it about? It's complicated. Yes. It's just... It's about a young girl. A young and foolish girl who sees something from her bedroom window which she doesn't understand, but she thinks she does. will ever finish it when it came to bringing the novel to the screen richard Eyre, whose extensive experience lay in directing theater television and film was the first talent attached and it was Eyre's idea to hire christopher hampton to write the script it was a brilliant if not an obvious choice after all hampton has won an oscar a BAFTA and the WGA for having adapted his own theatre play to the screen with Dangerous liaisons. Very quickly the two men agreed to tell McEwen's story in flashback via the very faint and very flawed memories of the now 70-year-old Brian E. Tallis. Hampton did a number of drafts but then Iyer had to drop out and in came a young director, Joe Wright. While nowhere near as experienced as Iyer, Wright nonetheless had good pedigree. He was hot off a very successful adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. While Austen purists railed against the loose manner with which Wright had treated their book, Wright had shown he was not shy of changing a literary classic. You see, Joe Wright doesn't so much adapt novels as make movies. His fidelity lies with film. So, after reading the drafts Hampton had done, Wright met with him and said, let's start from scratch. Dearest Cecilia, the story can resume. The one I had been planning on that evening walk. I can become again the man who once crossed the Surrey Park at dusk in my best suit, swaggering on the promise of life. The man who, with the clarity of passion, made love to you in the library. Starting from scratch meant getting rid of the flashback structure and the voiceover narration. And in turn, that meant the story would be told not so much by way of what is seen by the characters as how the characters see it. So, instead of having one narrator, the story would be told through the eyes, but not the words, of several characters. Have you been in touch with your family? No, I told you I wouldn't. Leon waited outside the hospital last week. I just pushed past him. See, you don't owe me anything. Robbie, didn't you read my letters? Had I been allowed to visit you, had they let me every day, I would have been there every day. Yes, but if all we have rests on a few moments in a library three and a half years ago, then I'm not sure. Robbie, look at me. I don't know if... Look at me. However, that does not mean there is no narration in the film. No, if anything, the film is narrated in a very muscular manner. You see, when it comes to cinema, narration is not exclusively the domain of a character's spoken words. It is much more than that. It is everything within the film. The look of the film, the choice of costumes, the use of location, the inclusion of sound, music, and the way it is acted. It is through all these disciplines that the director narrates the story. I'm not saying that the director thinks of everything and tells everyone what to do, but when you are working with such phenomenal talents as writer Christopher Hampton, cinematographer Seamus McGarvey, composer Dario Marianelli, whose score won an Oscar, costume designer Jacqueline Duran, think of that breathtaking green evening gown Kira Knightley wore at the dinner party. All these talents come to the table and discuss the central idea the director wants. Thank you, thank you incredibly bloody stupid thing to do I wanted you to save me don't you know how easily you could have drowned you saved me stupid child you could have killed us both is that your idea of a joke I want to thank you for saving my life I will be eternally grateful to you Wright wanted to start from scratch and show us letters and notes being written in order to visualize one of the themes telling stories and telling little stories. I wouldn't necessarily believe everything Bionet tells you. She's rather fanciful. And so, quite frequently, we have an event unfold and then we see it unfold again. This time from another vantage point from which we actually get to see the real story. Added to that, Wright widened another visual scheme that flows through the film. Literally flows. I'm talking about water. It's everywhere. It's there in the fountain into which Cecilia dives to retrieve the vase that Robbie accidentally broke. Bryony does her own diving as well, as she leaps into the river in the hope and expectation that Robbie will jump in and save her. There's the lake where Cecilia goes to swim later that same hot afternoon. Then there is the bath where Robbie relaxes before going to the dinner party on that fateful summer evening. There is another river, this time in France, that leads Robbie and his mates back to Dunkirk Beach. I don't want to give too much away, but Cecilia waits by the sea, and then there is London's underground. Why all the water? Well, look at the title. When a person seeks atonement, they are seeking forgiveness. They want their sins washed away. And with that in mind, you will notice a lot of Christian imagery throughout the story. You see, Robbie is not just the gardener's son. His surname is Turner, Wood Turner, Carpenter, get it? Such illusions are rich and complex, and sometimes not so subtle. Look at the scene where Robbie makes love with Cecilia in the library. Now notice how Cecilia positions herself against the shelves. Then notice the moment in France when Robbie realizes that he has been injured. He has a flesh wound to his chest. And after that, you can see the beach at Dunkirk for what it was for so many real-life servicemen in the war, an apocalypse, the end of days. Time was running out on all these soldiers as they waited desperately to be rescued from the edge of the world. And Seamus McGarvey's brilliant, daring single tracking shot that weaves its way through that inferno, this really is the ninth circle of hell. But the biggest allusion to Jesus is the ending where, Would it be a sin to give away the ending?